Welcome to the Sports Equity Podcast. Here we talk to special guests from teams, brands, and agencies to discuss the value that sports brings to business through current trends and best practices with your host, Brett Weisbrot. Our guest today has spent almost 30 years in the sports and entertainment industry, starting in Major League Baseball and working his way through the NHL and NFL, now currently leading all of event production and game presentation for the Los Angeles Chargers. Please welcome Pete Soto to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you. So Pete, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you first grew up. So uh, I was born in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my whole family, uh, everyone's older, I'm the baby. So I have a, a Brooklyn sensibility, but I would really say that home to me was Long Island. That's where uh, we moved out in Suffolk County area. So that's kind of where I was born and bred. Um, and that's, uh, that's uh, you know, where I come from. So uh, you know, Long Island is germane to my heart and so is Brooklyn, but more so Long Island. And, you know, where and when back then did you first fall in love with sports? You know, it's funny. I, I, I think I, I always had a, uh, an affinity for sports, right? I mean, my brother's older than me and he, he was a really good baseball player. In fact, he played with uh, John Franco, was his best friend growing up. So and Franco went on to play for the Reds and the Mets. Um, but I, I think I could actually pinpoint the moment that I fell in love with sports. And it, it almost sounds cliche, but it was the 1980 Miracle on Ice. And it was, it was that I was 10 years old. And uh, to see uh, how our whole town went nuts. Now, you remember back then, the game had already had happened. But there was no internet. There was no social media. So none of us knew what happened. It was on tape delay. And um, I remember how nervous my dad was all day. Uh, and then when we beat the Russians, you know, pfft. It was such a great moment. We ran outside with pots and pans and, you know, screaming in the streets, USA, USA. And if you remember at the time, it, you know, wasn't, it was rough in the USA at that time. We, you know, we, we were filling our gas tanks with gasohol and you just, it was, it was a kind of the, the, you know, the hostages and all that stuff was going on. And I remember running back into the house, just super happy and seeing my dad crying. And I remember going, how, what, what are you crying for? I mean, we just, we just beat the Russians. We're going to the gold medal game. And he said, I'm crying because I'm happy. And I, I don't remember, I mean, you know, at 10 years old, it, it was to me, it was like, I didn't understand that, you know, at, with age, I started to grow up and I realized what a pivotal moment that was for me. And I fell in love with, uh, with hockey, number one. And then I started, you know, playing hockey, playing football. And I was, I was hooked, uh, hook, line and sinker after that. If I remember around those times, my dad too was going to some games. And I think the Islanders were pretty good at the time if you're on Long Island. Yeah, so uh, so when we moved out to Long Island, I'll tell you a quick funny story. I actually uh, pulled for the Islanders for one season just to be annoying to my brother and my father who were diehard Ranger fans. And it happened to be the year that Mike Bossy scored 50 goals in 50 games. Wow. So it was really cool. But I... I, I made the switch over to the Rangers because of my father, because of again, the miracle on ice. So I wanted to do everything with them and I fell in love with the Rangers. And of course that's the Island, the dynasty. So I had to, I had to grow up in, uh, in, in school in my formative years surrounded by freaking Islander fans. And I, to this day, probably the team I hate the most is the New York Islanders. And we'll get more into hockey throughout this, but did you ever have a chance to tell Danny Potvin that? 
I did actually I did and uh, you know and it's funny I, I the first time I told him I was actually with the Hurricanes at the time but we were on the elevator together and he was with Billy Smith and uh, I it was quiet on the elevator and I look over to him I go boy I hated both you guys growing up and uh, then he looked over at me and goes ah were you a Rangers fan <laughs> I said yes I was he goes well I was happy to make you hate me he goes, you didn't throw a battery at me, did you? And I go, no, no, it wasn't when I was a kid. But it was, it was a cool moment, you know. And, and who would have known that, you know, I would have become friends with Denny Potvin, work with Denny Potvin, work with Bill Torrey, you know, get to know those Islanders on a, on a level that uh, was personal. And they never knew how much I couldn't stand them when I was a kid. <laughs> we'll get some more of that. So taking the fanboy out of you for a minute, when did you first realize that the business side of sports and entertaining was, you know, entertaining fans was for you. Um, I think that came, you know, I was going to university in Miami, Barry University, and um, they came in and, and there was me and a friend of mine named Bob Becker. And uh, we, we both kind of offered this internship uh, opportunity for the new baseball team known as the Florida Marlins. So I didn't know anything really about sports production. Back then, it was really just essentially just replays right that was a replay machine on that big board and um i got the internship i started i think my first event actually was a dolphins game so i did i worked on an internship for the stadium um and uh, bob had an internship with the marlins so i did um dolphins first and then the marlins at the same time when there was a crossover uh and these shows were starting to develop and i i had planned to go on to get my master's in film and I fell in love with sports production. And, and you know, I, I am thankful to this day that Wayne Huizinga uh, wanted to try something new because we were fresh out of college and we had a lot of uh, piss and vinegar in us and we went with it. We did whatever we, we wanted. And that was, that was a blast. And that was prior to the inaugural game with the Marlins? Uh, it was it was right up at the same time. So Bob started, I, I worked the inaugural game with the Marlins and then I was kind of on hiatus and, but I interned right through and I had to do all the, uh, uh, the logging of tapes, you know, Chucky Carr single here. I mean, that was monotonous, but you, you work hard and you get rewarded. Yeah, I remember the Nigel Wilson giveaway pin at the time when you came to the game. <laughs> yeah, Nigel Wilson. There's there's a lot of names from from the the the, the Marlins back then. You go, oh yeah, I have a Scott Pose uh, pin as well. So, you know, these are all great guys and part of the part of the history of the game. But uh, it was Slim Pickens in the beginning. Aristus Destrada. He was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Benito, was Benito inaugural or Benito came a little later? It was inaugural, yes. Number he, 09 was probably because of you. <laughs> yeah, he, he, was the, uh, he was the big free agent signing for us. Him and then shortly thereafter, we got Gary Sheffield. Yeah, those uh, were good times. We had some, some good guys. Charlie Huff was a big one. And, uh, of course, Brian Harvey was the safe, saves leader back then. Yeah, we'll get into the, some of the later years at the Marlins. But how was it building a uh, expansion franchise of baseball in South Florida in 1993? Uh, you know what? I got to tell you, I mean, it was it was rewarding. I mean, it was it was so. I mean, I was a kid. I mean, I was still in college, and it was so uh, just awesome to be part of something like that. To to bring a major league baseball team. I mean, right out of college to a major league baseball team, and it, they were fun. And we were trying new things, and some of them were short sighted, like uh, the seventh inning stretchers. You know, we tried it though. You know, give it a shot. 
and we got mocked and made fun of it. But a lot of the stuff that we created stuck and it blew up. Things like the Bleacher Brigade, you know, that was something new and nobody had these fan teams. But we were young and, and like, let's give it a shot. And, you know, and there were there were partners that came along like um, Click Effects. They, they now uh, they're now um, owned by um, Chiron. But this was an upstart group that created a, a, a file music machine. And we were their first big client because we didn't know any better. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we did experimented benefited us and it, and it gave us the gumption and the guts to try these things. And, and you don't see that a lot in the business. People are, are very worried about what happens on the boards. And we were like, let's just go for it. Let's, let's just have some fun with it. And that was, again, widely because of Wayne Heisinger. We'll dig into that, but that, that probably was a trend in some of your South Florida opportunities. So would you say it was challenging in Joe Robbie Stadium being a football venue um, to engage in such a big venue? And, and if, if it was, you know, how did you create some scarcity and focus on maybe more of the popular areas of the building? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it, it was a challenge, but it wasn't uh, as big a challenge as you might think. I mean, yes, it was cavernous. And yes, there were a lot of seats that we covered with tarps because of obstructed views and whatnot. And in the leaner years, when there were thin crowds, it felt like cavernous. You felt like, you know, you were in the Grand Canyon trying to fill it up. Uh, but we created a lot of cool things. I mean, the, the picnic deck, you know, was something that was unique to South Florida. You could sit out there in the outfield and barbecue and it was so cool. Um, you know, I think the, the, the challenges were how hot it was for baseball in the summer in South Florida. I mean, it was brutal, but again, you know, the activations from there, I mean, we created these tents outside that were Marlins specific, right? So we, we engaged with our Latin American uh, uh, audience and we had paella and all kinds of fun stuff out there. So I, I think we created a, a really cool atmosphere. Um, a lot of cool offerings for fans that just, you know, uh, was unique to South Florida and, 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 to, the, and to the Marlins. Uh, and, but I think the challenges, I mean, the challenges were probably more for the Dolphins, you know, when they had to play on the infield, you know, and, you know, kick a field goal from second base. Um, I think that was a challenge. I think the bigger challenge was even though we were owned by uh, Wayne Heisinger together, I think um, we always felt like second secondary citizens there mm -hmm. because, you know, you know, Dolphins, it was, a, you know, any team, any city that has a football team, you know, has is usually king. The football team is king. And uh, we understood that. I mean, the Dolphins were there, you know, forever. Um, but it didn't feel great at times when, you know, you felt like a secondary citizen. That's why, you know, when we won the series, man, it was, <laughs> we were the kings of the world right there. We, we knocked down the king. Before you get into that with the ring, I want to talk about that. But what was your, what did your first full-time role look like at the Marlins? My first full-time role, I was known as the associate producer, right? So uh, basically uh, it was creating all the features, all the inning breaks, all the music, you know, it was just two of us. It was just Bob Becker and I, he was the producer, I was the associate producer. And uh, we had like an intern, we had Chris Myers, who was an intern, but a very short staff. And we didn't really, I mean, we were young, so we didn't think of, you know, think it, you know, anything less of the situation, but we worked so hard in the beginning because it's not easy to fill up 18 breaks with footage and, and videos. And that's what we were doing. This was really before the corporate 
uh, sponsorship blew up and you know you you could easily kind of fill that by having corporate uh, entities and and corporate features so we were making stuff up as we went and we were having a blast doing it but it was hard because we didn't want to run the same show every night i mean every night is a baseball game and in, in major league baseball so you didn't want to run the same programming so we always changed the programming which we put so much pressure on ourselves by doing that but I, I look back at that and I, I love it. I, I tell anybody young in the business, baseball is where you earn your bones because it's going to test your metal because you're going to work hard. And in South Florida, I mean, in my last season with the Marlins, we had 27 rain delays, 27 of 81 wow. home games. That was an act of attrition, right? So there were times where you were getting out of the stadium at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and then you had a, a, another game the next day. Um, and it just went like that. And uh, But I'll, I wouldn't change it for the world. I'm, I'm assuming you were living close to the stadium at the time with those trips? I was living in Southwest Ranches and the stadiums in uh, Miami. Okay. Uh, it was about it was about 25, 30 minute drive, maybe a little longer. Okay, not crazy. It's where a lot of Dolphin fans still come from today. Um, and then, you know, what would you say in those early years was maybe your favorite breakthrough moment? You know, I think we had so many and I, I don't want to like toot our own horn, but we were creating stuff from nothing. We were throwing stuff out there that I don't think people would do nowadays. Like, you know, we were, we, we were like someone like muscle boy, it's just some little kid flexing at the opposing pitches. We blew it up. We made it a feature and we, and it became big. Uh, you know, uh, we had two uh, older ladies who were season ticket holders that we just named them the Golden Girls because they were always there and we would play that song. So I think I think for me, what I'm most proud of is how we interacted with the fans. And it's something that taught me a life lesson early in this business is listen to your fans, make your fans the stars of the thing because players come and go. And yet you want to humanize the players as much as you can and, and get them to care about these players. But at the end of the day, the fans are the ones that are always going to be there. So, so celebrate them. And, and I think that's what I was most proud of. I think what we did with the Bleacher Brigade was, was phenomenal and it blew up after that. And everyone has a sports team now. And we were like one of the first to have an in-game host. Uh, you know, what we did with our mascot was, was, was fun. We just, we pushed the envelope so hard because we were young and hungry and, you know, we didn't know better, to be quite honest. And we were just trying to entertain people. If I remember, did the Bleach Brigade have kind of like a mitt or something that came out of their backpack and popped up? Yeah, they, they had all kinds of stuff like that. It was, a, it was an upstart company from Orlando area. They had this kind of concept. And we were like, yeah, let's jump on that. And then once we got them in, we were like, hey, can they do this? Can they do this? Can they do this? And they became characters. Uh, and they were, they were secondary mascots. And we said, this, we're on to something here. Uh, and we had a blast with them. And, you know, I can't, I think it was called Sports Magic, I believe. Uh, those guys were great. And then everyone started going, well, we don't need to pay a company to do that. We could do it ourselves. You know, we know all the tricks. We've watched all it. So I think that's what kind of killed their business. But they, they, were, they were very, um, you know, uh, uh, ingenious in coming up with this concept. And we had fun. Like we had characters named like Major Fun was one of the characters. And they became characters onto their own. And, and they all grew up to, to do other great things in the business. And can you imagine nowadays with the, the campaigns and the activations you create having digital and social in that era? Mm, absolutely. I mean, it would have been a totally different, different era, but again, that's why everything happens. Like I said, you know, it evolved, like, you know, 
the the Ben Creeds of the world who I worked with at the Marlins start to see, hey, there's a value to this video board. It started with replays, like, you know, the Health South replay or whatever it would be. And then it was like, why not sponsor some of these features in game? I mean, people are watching them, they're engaging with them. And then, then we try to figure out, you know, a sales point back to, to the company. And it just be, it blew up, it blew up. And then who knew like, you know, this would become the next great revenue generator for sports. Right. And, and we were, we were right there at the cusp and we were, like I said, you know, I'm proud of how, how hard we pushed it and how hard we pushed other teams by being, you know, creative. And in 1997, when did it hit that you feel like you had a contender ready to make a run? You know, I, it's, that season was interesting because we we had a good nucleus, right? We had, we had Kevin Brown, we had um, Al Leiter, we, we had a good, you know, a couple good pitchers in there. We had Gary Sheffield, we had Jeff Kona, and we had a lot of good players too. But when we started, you know, we added Alex Fernandez, and then we added Moise Salou and Bobby Bonilla. And, you know, and then you start going, hey, these guys are really good players. And now you're starting to feel a little swagger to yourself. And then, you know, it was a perfect season. It really was. I mean, you added the, the, the role players that played big roles like Dennis Cook, you know, who was a great middle reliever who had some clutch hits and, and then the emergence of, of like Edgar Renteria and Luis Castillo. And these were young players that were coming up and, and we kept adding, you know, character players like uh, Jim Eisenreich. Uh, who would come in? The guy, the guy was a hitting machine, and John Cangelosi, who even pitched a couple innings in one game. And then we added, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, um, who was the catcher at the time? Was that Charles Johnson? It was CJ, yeah, Charles Johnson, another young guy. And then we added Dutch Dalton at the end, who's a great leader. You know, he was he went to the series with the the Phillies and whatnot. Um, and so, and then of course the tale of Levon Hernandez. You know, Tony Saunders breaks his his arm. Uh, throwing a pitch in Tampa and uh, you know we get this young guy who's you know a, a defector from Cuba and his brother's a legend in Cuba and we didn't know what he was going to be and he ripped off I think nine or 11 wins in a row and the saga in the playoffs I mean he was the MVP it, so to answer your question long form I felt it right from the beginning I felt that kind of swagger from the beginning and we did we played well all year long. And I think uh, the moment that sticks out to me the most is that's the year that Wayne Heisinger also announced he was going to sell the team. Okay. And we had a big staff meeting and Don Smiley, who was our president, said he was trying to put a, an ownership group to buy it because it meant so much to him. And he was giving us a speech and he couldn't even get it out. He was, he was starting to choke up. And Dave Dabrowski stood up, who was our GM, and you know came to, to help out Don. And he goes, listen, he goes, this is, this is business. And he goes, now really, it's, and I, I mean, and you may have to bleak me here, but he literally said, he goes, now all that's left for us is to go out and win this whole fucking thing. And I just remember it uplifted everybody. And we felt like we were going to win. And we did. It was great. It was great. That was the same. So growing up, I was forced to watch the 86 Mets VHS tape over and over and over again. So when the Marlins came in 93, we had lived here for a couple of years. We had four families splitting 20 games each because, as you know, 80 baseball games is a lot. So I was fortunate of those families to be at game seven with you, with Renteria Council and the whole thing. You know, how did you feel during game seven winning your first championship ring on a walk-off? Man, I, I can't tell you. There's no moment that 
has surpassed that in my career. And I've had a, I've had a, a lot of fun in my career, but I can tell you that, you know, we were young. And so we, it was our fifth season, you know, it was our fifth season. We're like, are you kidding me? We're in the, we're in the world series. Now you gotta remember how we got there. I mean, we won the wild card. We were the first team to win the wild card essentially. Right. And, um, and we, we partied with the team in the, in the, uh, in the hangar at Wayne's hangar at the airport. And then we had an amazing series where San Francisco, you know, where two walk-off games there, right? Gary Sheffield slamming across the plate at, at Joe Robbie. Then we went to San Francisco and Devon White hits that grand slam that seals right. the deal. And then we go to Atlanta and Atlanta was the big dogs. They were, they were, they were the, the, they were the, the, the national league standard. Like nobody had the Braves went every year to the world series and they were cocky and arrogant and, we lost Alex Fernandez and now we don't have, you know, one of our aces and Al Leiter didn't have the greatest year that year. So, you know, we still had Kevin Brown and, and, and Levon stands up on his head and, you know, I don't care what anyone says about that 15 strikeout game because Greg Maddox had the same strike zone. Uh, but Levon was the story and beating Atlanta. And I remember being in Atlanta and with my, my bright blue, uh, Marlins jacket and just getting all these dead looks and we win that game in game six to go to the series. Uh, there was nothing like it. And then again, Cleveland was a phenomenal team, you know, and uh, they were so good in that game. You know, at one point it looked like we were going to win going away and then they came back and it was back and forth. And, and then game seven comes and it, it was so stressful and I couldn't sleep the night before. I just wanted to get to the stadium. I remember I got up at like 5 a.m. and I just went to the stadium because I just wanted to be there. And, and we were so young, uh, not only me and, and Bob being young, but our whole staff was young. The whole organization, yeah. And the whole organization was young. The whole c control room crew was young and everybody was just trying to soak it in. Like, holy cow, we're at the World Series in game seven. And I remember when we lost game six, a little a leadership story you know it was like a death in the family when you we lost game six mm -hmm. chat oj uh of all things and then so we went down uh i went down to the control room and i, I knew everyone's gonna be hang dogging and i walked into the control room and i said uh i go hey what's everyone hanging their head about i said there's nothing nothing in the world like winning a game seven on your home turf and it kind of just lifted everyone's spirits so the next day we came in and everyone was there early. And one of the things we used to do is, you know, on the, on those uh, ramps at Joe Robbie or, or whatever the heck it's called now, Dolphin Stadium. Roundabouts, yeah. Those, those roundabouts, we would stand there and we would watch the fans come in. And it was just such a great moment. We had so many wonderful moments leading up to that game that we, we were amped up four hours before the game, the gates even opened. And we had a lot of great memories between us and group and hugging and just like, hey, this is what it's all about. And then uh, the game itself, oh God, uh, was a wonderful game, right? They took a two nothing lead. Jarrett Wright was lights out. We couldn't, we could not do anything against this guy. And <clears throat> they took a two nothing lead. And uh, yeah, I, I forgot to mention Council as one of those character guys that we got late in the season. But we get in that game and, and uh, I remember saying like on the headset, we were down to nothing. It was like, oh God, we can't lose this. And then I just said, we just can get Jared right out of this damn game. And I think it was the seventh inning, Bobby Bonilla let off first pitch, boom, and he just hit it. 
And as soon as he hit it, I just knew it was gone. And, and we went freaking nuts. Like we knew the energy had changed. Now remember, it was a football stadium. So they opened all the seats. So there were 67,000 fans in that place. And it was awesome. The energy was right. Everything about that was perfect. Every song I chose, everybody was up and, and going crazy. Uh, and I remember um, we get to that ninth inning and, you know, we're just terrified of what's going on. And uh, Moise Salou was on first and there was one out. And I said, now CJ was, he, he was a good player. He was a great player. I see behind the plate, one of the best catchers ever, but he hit into a lot of double plays. So I just remember going, oh, God, please don't hit into a double play. Whatever you do, CJ, please don't hit into a double play. And he hits that just that looper right over first base, which got Mo over to, to third base. And, of course, when Council came up, he launched that. We thought it, we thought it was a walk-off home run, but we knew we tied it up. And once we had it tied up, we felt better about our chances. And the energy would just – it was visceral. I mean, you could feel it. And when we got into that, uh, I think it was the 12th inning, uh, it was past midnight, and uh, I forgot. I, I mean, we were so, and I could tell you, you know, I could tell you that Marlin lineup from soup to nuts, from first to ninth, the whole pitching staff. But when you're living in those moments, every moment you're living in, you don't know what's going on. You just focused on that moment. Every pitch was, <gasps> you know, one of those things. And um, I remember we had the bases loaded, and Devon White was up. And Devo hits a double play ball, essentially. But Tony Fernandez has to make the right play and make sure if he, you know, because Devon White is our, you know, he was our leadoff hitter. He was our, one of our fastest players. Yeah. They, you know, they can't take the chance of a double play because if he's safe, then Bobby Bonilla scores, we win the game. So he goes home and now it's two outs. And I remember <laughs> the headset was, was very quiet. And I said, who's up, who's up? Cause I was being very positive. And I saw Edgar Renderia walking and I had jokingly nicknamed him kid clutch early in the year. Cause he had so many clutch moments throughout the year. And I remember looking down and I said, boys, cause it was an all boy staff. And I go, boys, get ready to celebrate the, the world series. We're going to win right here. And I got, I, I'll never forget that moment. Cause he, the first pitch was a ball. And then I said, get ready. Here it comes. I just felt it. And he hits that ball. And I, I was Charles Nagy was, was in pitching. He was the knuckleballer. And I remember he reached up and the ball hit the glove and it started going towards the second base. And you got two of the best infielders in the game at that time, especially defensively. Tony Fernandez coming from second and Omar Vizquel yeah, from, for sure. from short. And I remember just looking at it. And I, I could tell you that it was dead silent. It was just the that moment and then seeing them running and then that ball hit the green and then that place just, just erupted. And I remember, Oh God, I get choked up even thinking about it, but it was such a, we went freaking bananas. We were kids, you know, and I had to hit the song, which that year, our song, it was the locker room song was it's a beautiful life by Ace of Base. And I hit the song as Bob and Jero, uh, our PA announcer, tackled me essentially and i remember we're in press row mind you and we're celebrating you know just screaming and i look out of the corner of my eye and the booth right next to me is vin scully 
And he's looking over at us like we're the most unprofessional gorillas <laughs> that he's ever seen. But we didn't care because right next to us, Felo uh, Ramirez and Manolo, uh, I forget his last name, they were slapping the glass. <laughs> they were so happy. And of all that chaos, when you when, when council hit that that base and you know home base and, and jump yep. and we won the World Series, I my wife was pregnant. Uh, six or seven months pregnant with my daughter and she was sitting in the club and again 67,000 people but I could spot her and she was standing on top of the chair uh, and her mother was beneath her you know making sure she didn't fall but she's pregnant and she was just jumping up and down and oh it was it was it was uh, the the best moment of my career 100%. Thank you for that I appreciate that story. So kind of leaning off the Marlins, another championship era in your life, both developing your family at this point in your next job, but also on the ice as well. You know, in 99, you were introduced to the Carolina Hurricanes, moving up to Raleigh uh, to lead advertising and in-game activation. How did that all come about? So um, so Bob left shortly thereafter, uh, 97. He went to go to Tampa. Tampa Bay was starting up. They were the Devil Rays at the time, and he went to go on the coaching video side, which... I, and he still, you know, don't know why, but he did. So I was now the producer of the Marlins. Um, and then Dean Jordan got hired by um, Peter Kermanos up in, in Carolina. And Dean oversaw Wayne Heisinger Holdings, the, the production end. So he remembered just how, what a great atmosphere the Marlins were. So he wanted to have that same atmosphere in Carolina. So he, he called uh, Bob Becker and then Bob went, and then I went, uh, and it was a it was a task because hockey was not germane to, to Raleigh in any way. Um, but I, my first love, I mean, it's a it's a toss up between football and hockey. But I loved hockey. I played hockey, and and my father loved hockey more than anything. So I wanted to kind of go somewhere where I know he would like. So it was my first kind of step outside of my comfort zone and moving to a, a place that, you know, I'm a New Yorker, you know, I lived in the sixth borough of New York, which was South Florida. And now I'm going to, to Raleigh, North Carolina. And, um, you know, that's how it all came about really, you know, you know, Dean, uh, Dean Jordan really wanted to kind of have that same spirit. And then what was unique is once we got there, uh, Dean was like, Oh, pretty, pretty soon thereafter. And I was like, I just moved up. I was a young family. My daughter was born. Now it's just, you know, and, and uh, my wife and I moved up there. So, you know, it was a scary moment, but we were just doing our thing. We were, we were just taking our Florida Marlins show to hockey and seeing how, how it fit. So it's safe to say in this role became a little more commercialized, right? And you had to adjust to activating brands and engaging fans more so than just the authentic fan engagement in the first gig. You know, how was that transition also on top of going from baseball to hockey? Well, I mean, we, we our marketing uh, vice president, Ken Laner, he's a big idea guy. I loved working with Ken. Um, Ken d did a lot of, you know, uh, in the industry and he, he had big ideas and um, I love that. And he, he took the, the capacitors off us as well. And he's like, just do your thing. And uh, we did. And, uh, and, you know, I could tell you that not only did we do our thing for, for the hurricanes, but we did it for the Wolfpack. Like, you know, I, my father was a wrestling fan. So I was a wrestling fan. 
uh, I brought wolf pack in the house to the wolf pack, you know, and that started becoming the thing, you know, and we helped their marketing team, you know, by just being who we were and having fun with it. But it, it, the challenge was, was, was real. I mean, I, I remember we did a, a caravan across North Carolina uh, with our mascot and, you know, our, uh, you know, our youth hockey initiatives and all that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I go to a hotel and be like, hey, you know, here, you know, we're at the Carolina hurricanes and they were like, the hurricane hit last week, you know, Hurricane Floyd. And I'm like, no, no, the hockey, like nobody knew who the hockey team was. And, you know, we had our work cut out for us and we had to introduce people to hockey. And it's basketball country in North Carolina and college football, but really basketball. You got Duke and, and you know, Carolina and NC State there. So we, we had our, 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 our work cut out for us. We had to show them, you know, and, you know, one of the cool slogans that Ken had come up with was, you'll know when you go, right? And it was just like, you just got to come out to a game, come out to a game, experience hockey live, and you might like it. And it was a slow process, but it, it was, it was a, a, a great time. And who would you say had the biggest impact on your career at the time? Um, I, you know what? I, I had a lot of influencers, you know, I mean, a lot of people that I looked up to from the Marlins, you know, Don Smiley and, and like Jim Ross, who was, who took over uh, the uh, marketing department, you know, Jim's, um, he was a tough guy to work with at times because he demanded excellence, but I think he got a lot of that because of the way he demanded it. And I, I, I respected him for it because, you know, it, it taught me how to be a man in the business and take criticism. Um, that I, I wasn't prepared for because as an artist, as a creator, I don't like people telling me, you know, how to create, but I also realized it's a business. So Jim, Jim, I would put Jim in there. I, I would, Ken Lehner was another one. I, there were so many people that, you know, and in the business guys like John Franzone, you know, who was with the Yankees at the time, who was, you know, dealing in a very uh, tough situation, you know, in New York and Steinbrenner was still alive. Um, and what he was able to accomplish. And he was another guy I looked up to. And Tim Beach with the Islanders uh, was another guy I kind of looked up to. But there were so many. Kyle Ritchie, I mean, how could I forget Kyle Ritchie, who was, you know, who gave me my shot as an intern. Um, these were all people that I looked up to. But I, I, I hate, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant at all, but I always had a um, confidence in who I was and a swagger in what I was doing. And yeah, I, and I, I, I absolutely was influenced by a lot of people but i i you know i felt that we were we were the who we were the leaders so we, we were the we were the trendsetters and you know we were the trailblazers and uh I, and you know so it's hard to, to pinpoint exactly you know but there were a lot of influences in my life at that point that's great and what would you you mentioned a campaign that someone else came up with but what campaign did you come up with in raleigh that you're most proud of you know th- there's a lot of fun ones that that we did um that I thought was cool. Um, I think my favorite though was it's a Kaniac thing, right? Uh, so um, I'll tell you a quick story on the Kaniac. So Ken Lanard come to come to us, and come to me, and said, "Hey, I want to I want to start calling our fans Kaniacs, you know, like cheeseheads and stuff like that." And I go, "Wow!" I go, "It's cool." I said, "But if we start calling them that, then they're not gonna they're not gonna take to it because it's something that we pitched to them essentially." it has to feel like it, it, it's something from them. And, and that was one of the time, the first times for me where I learned that 
it's not tricking the audience, but it's inspiring the audience to be what you want them to be, right? To give them the tools and, and to introduce them without kind of leading them by the nose. And so what we did was at the time there was a uh, campaign from a, a beer company called Molson that uh, was uh, I am Canadian. Mm -hmm. So we started to take that because they were funny commercials and everyone loved them. So we started placing signs. We had signs and we made our own signs. And then we would like put like, come on ref, you know, things that we wanted to say but we couldn't say on the video board. So we made it look like it was a fan. So we were doing that all the time. We would call them plants to inspire our fans. And we started with I am Kaniac in the same kind of script as I am Canadian. And it just, it was, a, it really just kind of took off on its own. And, uh, you know, I, I think that alone was a, as a, was a fun uh, and kind of one of those great moments in my career. Uh, it was Ken's idea, but we made it come to life. But then after Ken had left, we came up with, um, it's a Kaniac thing, right? Because uh, people didn't understand, you know, at this point now we were getting some notoriety in the league, you know, cause we, we had tailgaters because it's college town, everyone tailgates for right. and beautiful weather. So we started tailgating hockey and, and making that a thing. And people were like, look at these hockey fans tailgating in Raleigh. So we go, yeah, well, it's a Kaniac thing, you know? And then we started, so that was probably my favorite slogan, like I should say, is it's a Kaniac thing. Uh, we had a lot of great uh, um, slogans and campaigns, but that one was probably my favorite because it resonated with people. And, and I, one of the things I used to do when I first got to Raleigh was I would go in any kind of public setting and I would look around for like Hurricanes logos and hats and shirts and I would count them. And it was like one, two, three. And then I, I was on, a, my father had passed and I, I was contemplating whether I wanted to, to go to Pittsburgh because the, the the penguins were coming after me, or when I go to Florida um, to to be with my mom because my mom was in Florida, and I was at I was at the airport waiting on a plane to go to 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 Pittsburgh, and I was looking around. I was counting logos, and I counted like forty one logos, and I knew that my 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 job had been done, and there was time to move on. Ultimately, I went to Florida to be with my mother. Uh, Pittsburgh is a great hockey town, uh, but Florida Florida has its challenges. I, I, I like a challenge, and uh, that's how I wound up going back to Florida. Okay, hold on. Before we touch on Florida, you forgot one of the biggest components in Raleigh, <laughs> right? Tell me about, two, uh, was it 2006? Yes. So, so we, we, we had gone to the Cup in 2002 and lost to Detroit. I still think we could have won that long story, but yeah, 2006, we went to the cup. And how was that different than winning at the Marlins? Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to kind of uh, describe it. I, I think to win the Stanley cup is, is, is more of a challenge because you have to win more rounds and it's brutal. Whereas baseball, you know, you got to win three rounds essentially um, where hockey is four and it's, it's tough. Um, and, you know, we were coming out of the lockout there and we were picked to finish 30, 30th in the league, like last or second to last. And we were watching these guys on the ice and we had, you know, we had the ultimate leader in Rod Brindamore on that team. But we had this kid named Eric Stahl, who was phenomenal player to watch, 
who was just coming into his own, had a 100-point year. We had a goaltender by the name of Cam Ward, who was a young guy coming into his career. We had a great team. Ray Whitney, we had, we had a lot of really good players. And we just started winning. And we didn't win. We didn't lose. And that's when we started to get a swagger, like, hey, we're going to win this thing. And even coming into the playoffs, it came down to uh, – you know, Buffalo could have gotten home field or home ice advantage over us if they would have won out or so. I can't remember the circumstances, but we got third seed or whatever it was. And people kind of wrote us off like and we were like, what are you talking about? I mean, this is a great team. And the way we won that series, I mean, that was that journey was probably a, uh, more rewarding than the Florida Marlins journey, although the Marlins ending was probably more sweet. But the journey for the Hurricanes was phenomenal, right? You had um, just a wonderful team. We brought up, we 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 added players towards the end, like Doug Wade and Mark Recchi, and you know these were good, you know, players that knew how to play in the playoffs. And uh, you know, we started out down 0-2, and uh, we came back and we against the Canadians. And there's nothing in the world like beating Montreal Canadians if you're in hockey because they're the Yankees of hockey and they're so arrogant and they their fans give it to you from the moment you get off the bus until the moment you leave and there was nothing more rewarding than that and um, along the way our goaltender uh, Martin Gerber got hurt he was in 40 wins that year so Cam Ward had to step up and what a phenomenal head if I remember he, he won the con Smythe because of how well he played. But we beat Montreal and so many overtime games and so many unlikely heroes. And then we went on to play uh, New Jersey, which, you know, anytime you got Martin Brodeur in the pipes, you, you got a chance to lose. And there was one game in that series where uh, we were down uh, with 22 seconds left and everyone's piling out. And I, I remember saying on the headset, I, I just don't feel like it's over. And sure enough, Eric Stahl scores with 0.4 seconds remaining. And we go into overtime. And Nick Valine, our defenseman, who scored like six goals on a year, gets his second overtime winner of the, the playoffs. So it was just a phenomenal run. We had a, a young kid uh, by the name of Julia Rowe, uh, God rest her soul, who was battling cancer, who became kind of, you know, our rallying point. And, uh, and we had a wonderful coach and Peter LaViolette who truly believed in, in unity and family. And it was just the perfect team. And uh, then we went on to play Buffalo, which they were a quintessential good team. I mean, Chris Drury and uh, uh, Daniel, uh, what the heck is his last name? I forget it. But I mean, yeah. and then you got Ryan Miller, phenomenal goaltender. Uh, and, you know, we went seven with them. And, uh, you know, when you go seven, that's exhausting. But then you get rewarded by thousands of fans at the airport just to welcome the team home and give them that shot in the arm and say, hey, Raleigh's a big town. Raleigh's a hockey town. And we support this team. And then, of course, you know, the Oilers on the other side, they were the eighth seed. And, you know, we were clearly better than the Oilers, but they had that no quit ability. And, you know, we pretty much took the series from them. We had, you know, we won an improbable game on a, a goalie gaff uh, that Rod Brindamore sealed the deal on. Um, and then when it looked like we were going to win it, we were in overtime and we had a power play. And we're like, this is it. This is the game. This is game four. This is it. Went. And it was an errant pass by Corey Stillman, who's a phenomenally smart player. Just happened. 
guy picked it up and he buried it. And we were like, oh boy. So you, you kind of try to shake it off. But when we went to Edmonton for game six, we weren't back. We weren't back mentally from losing a game like that. We, we had the cup in our hands and we blew it. And uh, so game six was the Eric Cole game. If you remember, Eric Cole had broken his neck earlier in the year on a hit from uh, Brooks Orpic. And all of a sudden, here he is. He's back from a broken neck. And we thought, we're going to win game six going away. And we got hammered by the Oilers. It was ugly. And I remember uh, I was up there as me and Don Sill, we were recording everything in case we won. And uh, the uh, producer for the league at the time, Aiden Cosgrove, he's a Canadian guy. So, you know, he's pulling for the Canadian team. But he's got to be unbiased. And we saw him cheering with the Oilers folks. So I was like, hey, I'm sorry. I was like, don't worry about it. I said, no way the Oilers are winning game seven. And unlike game seven with the Marlins, where I, I was a ball of, of nerves, the morning of game seven, I woke up and I had this ugly playoff beard and this ugly playoff hair. And I walked out, my wife was nervous. And she goes, you okay? I go, Melissa, there's no way we're losing this game tonight. I, just, I don't, I, I had no doubt. Left. And she was pregnant. Uh, in uh, 97 with uh, Danik, she was pregnant in 06 with my son Rocco. So I said to her, cause I couldn't uh, uh, hang out and, you know, hang out with the players after we won the, the world series. We could only hang out till like 2 a.m. cause she wasn't feeling well, she was pregnant. So I told her, go bring your own car. I said, cause when we win this cup, I ain't going anywhere until I drink out of it. And she understood. And we, I got to the rink and, you know, again, I was calm, like I had, grown from the Marlins I had grown from my experiences and uh, that game what I will hang my hat on to this day was Howard Sedell who was our marketing director at the time and I were talking about no one sits in this house tonight nobody sits and we just kept playing that over and over this is our house no one sits tonight we just kept playing on the LED boards and everywhere and just you know get behind and I swear no one sat that entire game and one of the, the, the funny things is like when, you know, I interviewed a couple of the players because you know, we did a home video afterwards. And I said, what's your favorite moment from the cup? And they were like, game seven, those fans never sat down. And I was like, we did that. You know, I mean, I'm sure the, the fans were ready for it, but they fed off of what we do. And that's why, you know, coming back to the whole circle of game presentation, I truly believe that if you do it right, if you have your heart in the right spot, if you believe in it, that you influence the game because energy feeds energy. And if we can make those fans energized, that they'll, it'll transfer to the ice. And I believe it absolutely 100%. Uh, and so uh, that game we scored right away. Uh, I think it was um, Aaron Ward, uh, who is a, uh, a defenseman through, through a puck in from the, from the uh, blue line we scored. And then second period, uh, Frank uh, Carbola, he scores, another defenseman. We're up to nothing. Like, we're swaggering. We're, we're, we're dancing. We're having a good time. But it's hockey. And two-goal lead is the worst lead in hockey. And sure enough, I, I, think it was, I think it was Rafi Torres scored early in the third period. Now, now you're on pins and needles. And that game, Cam Ward made the save of his life. Uh, I think it was... I think it was Rafi Torres again the, on the same, a very similar play in which he scored the, 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 the first goal wide open in front of the net puck, just him and Cam Ward. 
and he shoots it. And Cam Ward's pad is only on maybe six inches of ice, but it's right where the puck was. And it was the most phenomenal save uh, that I've ever seen, you know, in a, in a situation like that. And then after that, again, it's that nail biting and they had Chris Pronger and all that. And then when, uh, was it, uh, I think it was Eric Stahl threw the puck up to Justin Williams and he's streaking to an empty net. And I remember, again, I had bent the mountaintop with the Marlins. I didn't think anything could top that or equal it, but watching that guy skate down the ice in an empty net, I remember just this flush feeling on my whole body, chills everywhere. And he scored, that place erupted. And, and this little town, Raleigh, was on the map, you know, and they felt there and everybody felt every piece of that, you know? And I remember I had, I, the same thing I did in the Marlins, I, I bought a case of champagne, you know, in case. And I remember I popped the champagne and I started spraying it everywhere. And I started spraying it in the, at the fans because they were right beneath my booth and the fans were dancing. And it was, it was such a phenomenal feeling to win, to win that Stanley Cup. And of course, we drank out of it that night. Was that, the loudest, was that the loudest game you've ever worked? Yeah, I mean, and I, I still say, you know, at the time, I think that the Sacramento Kings had set the record for the loudest house. It was like 128 decibels for an arena. We hit, uh, you know, 138, 140 regular. It was so loud. I don't know whether it was acoustics, whatever it would be, but I, I really believe it was the fans were just so juiced up and it was time to put us on the map, you know, and, and, and celebrate that. And, you know, and I, I look back at all those great moments from that run. And, and the one that stands out was when Rod Brindamore, who to know Rod Brindamore uh, is to love Rod Brindamore. He's a funny guy, but he's work ethic, like no one I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, Roddy was a guy who wouldn't do a lot of stuff for game press because just not, just not who he was. He's old school. He's old school like that in a lot of ways. And to see the pure joy, he has, to me, the, the greatest the celebration of a captain raising the cup for the first time. You could just see that joy on him and how he did that and the way he threw it up. It was such a great moment for us. And then after that, you, you could feel that he accomplished what he wanted his whole life. And he, he laid back and he started helping us out in a lot of things. And then, you know, for me, the, the great moment there was the All-Star game too. And when the All-Star game came to Raleigh and, and – we showed uh, not only the NHL, but the world that Raleigh was a, was a great town and a, and a big league town and, and how we made that all-star game, one of the coolest all-star games ever. And, and I remember after that game, we were having a cigar at, at Ruth's Chris and uh, I leaned over to uh, Don Sill who was sitting next to me and I said, boy, that feels like a swan song. And I knew I was, it was time for me to leave there. Downtown Raleigh, the best chicken and waffles I've ever had. Yeah. Raleigh's a great city. It's, uh, it's underestimated a lot. It's a wonderful city. It's probably my favorite of the cities I've, I've lived in. So 12 years in Raleigh, you started transitioning a little bit earlier, but 2011, uh, you had the chance to come back to South Florida, which is your second home at that point, you know, 12 years, a long time, but still second home from college and Marlins and, you know, leading game presentation and productions for the Florida Panthers. You know, we had a chance to meet during that time period. What did you enjoy most about that era in your career? You know, I, I think there's a lot of things I enjoyed about it. I, I enjoyed the challenge in Florida because, you know, Cliff Viner was a wonderful owner, but he wasn't a billionaire owner. So we really had to, to work to keep that team there. And I respect that. I respect Michael Yormark. Uh, 
incredibly because Michael did whatever it took to keep that team afloat in Florida. And I think, you know, I was privy to, to have been uh, to go to the Stanley Cup games with the Panthers when they when they played Colorado. I went to two of those games. And I just remember how how the town loved the Panthers. And as I left to go to in my career to Raleigh, you know, 12 years, you know, as you say, is a long time. It is a long time. And all that that wonderful kind of uh, fandom that the Panthers built, they slowly eroded over the years because no one likes the lovable losers, right? You know, and they weren't that lovable in a lot of ways. Um, so they lost a lot of that cachet that they had built. And, you know, I, I worry about the same for teams like Vegas, you know, they come out in their first year and they, and they go to the Stanley cup, there's only downhill from there. Right. Uh, and I, it was like that with Florida, you know, people wanted a winner. And, and then of course the Marlins win is like, well, well, we want a winner. And, you know, the erosion of the Panthers, uh, was one of those things that it kind of bothered me because I, I love the Panthers. I grew up a Rangers fan, but I, I was rooting for the Panthers you know, and that's the town I lived in. So when I came back, I think the thing that, uh, that I'm most proud of is rekindling that memory, right? I, I created the, we didn't have a, a, a real good um, interactive fan squad. So I created the Rat Pack and, you know, bringing, you know, an homage back to the rat and, you know, than creating the mascot, uh, Victory Rat, to remember people, that to, to, to jog their memories of, of why it was fun and, and why those moments were great. And to reconnect some of those players from the past, whether it be the Russian Rocket, Pavel Bure, or John Van Beesbrook and you know Scott Mellenby, and really kind of reminding people who we are. And I had a blast doing that and reconnecting that. And then of course, we, we won, won the division that year, my first year. And the rats were, were back and uh, and the pride was back. And I think that's what I carry the most. I, I had some unfinished business in, in Florida because I didn't get to go to a championship with them. Uh, but, you know, after after Vinny uh, Viola purchased the team, I, I loved Vinny. Um, I personally think he was a great guy and I, I got along with him well. But there was a there was a, a different there was a change in the Panthers. We now had a real uh, real deep pocket owner. Uh, he wanted to win. Um, he had a lot of his family members that were there and he had like his partner had a lot of lawyers there. Um, so the, the atmosphere changed for me a little bit. Um, and then, you know, it got tough. And then Peter Luco came in from the Flyers, very, uh, very good hockey mind. Um, and he hated the show because of what it had become from the directors I had gotten from, uh, the president at the time, Rory Babish. Um, and I told him, hey, this isn't uh, what I want to do either. And we started to kind of change the atmosphere again. But uh, Peter wasn't an easy guy to, to work with, um, for me anyway. I, again, I, I give him a lot of credit for what he's done. And he's a, he's a, he's a genius in the business. But um, I just didn't like it. And, and I started to, um, started to doubt my, myself, my creativity, my talents, uh, with as much scrutiny as I was getting. Um, and then I heard of an opportunity in Atlanta and I said, I got to refine myself. And that's what led me to Atlanta. And, you know, you said, I think you said earlier in the program, right. You know, between football and hockey, you know, so sometimes it's hard to, you know, you know, which one was first or which one's best, but you know, now you have this opportunity to join the most elite league in the world and the national football league with the Atlanta Falcons at the time, still at the Georgia dome, even then, what was that opportunity like? 
you know, um, it, was a, it was a unique experience, right? Because the Falcons were always kind of um, the uh, the rented team, right? The Georgia Dome wasn't their home. It was it was a fully functioning stadium, so it was a show in a box that I had to create. Um, the NFL for a long time was called a no fun league because of all the rules that were in place for replays and all that stuff. They saw the error in, the, in their ways because the home viewer was becoming, it was everything you wanted. So they said, we got to reinvent ourselves. So I, I came in at the perfect time, I think. And I, I would say that um, the Georgia Dome was awesome. I met a lot of wonderful people. Uh, Beverly Wilson, who was the, running the dome, um, had been running the dome forever. And wonderful woman, really was dedicated to the Falcons. Uh, the crew, um, it was interesting for me because the crew kind of was, uh, they weren't my crew, right? They were the dome crew. So they kind of give, they kind of gave me like the, they were skeptical of who I was. Uh, the, the guy, my predecessor is a different type of caller than I am. Uh, he's, he's more of a, he's a yeller, right? And no knock on him. That's how he was learned. Um, I'm not a yeller. I, I, I believe, I believe you, you get more when people believe in the product and not only, and you have fun with them and, and they feel like they're part of it. And I'm not giving them a show and saying, do it my way. It's like, do it our way. Tell me your ideas. Cause ideas can come from anywhere from anybody and they could be great ideas. So I, I want to try, try them. I want to, I want it to be our show, not my show. Um, so it took me a little while to, to kind of, get them to understand who I was. And then of course, to add on the politics of a new stadium being built 90 feet away. And they didn't know if they were coming over or not, right? They, they didn't know because nothing had been conveyed to them. And I, I, one time I said, hey, look, I said, every one of you has a job at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, in my opinion. It's yours to lose, right? And some of them did lose it. Some of them didn't want to do my way. And some of them didn't like the Mercedes-Benz way. Uh, but, you know, uh, it was a wonderful time to be part of that, that stadium because there's a lot of history in that stadium. You know, the Olympics in that stadium, the Hawks playing there, a lot of great football memories, just so many Super Bowls, a lot of, a lot of really great memories. And I, I got to, to, to know those Georgia Dome people and to call them friends. And, uh, and of course, you know, I remember saying the year uh, and this is going to be uh, sound weird, but the year, uh, the final year of the Dome, uh, my wife asked me, what do you think the team's going to be? I said, I said, I, you know, Melissa, I said, with all the craziness of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, and, and obviously we'll get to that in a second, but I said, I, I would tell you that my career has never been the easy path. So I think we're going to win. We're going to go to the Super Bowl. And I said it kind of in passing. And, and sure enough, we went to the Super Bowl that year. And I remember it because there was, it was a lot of emotion tied to the, the Georgia Dome, especially for my crew at the Georgia Dome. And I told them in a meeting, and I said, look, I said, we're going to go out of this stadium by winning the NFC championship. And I said it again as a rah-rah moment. And it came true. It came to be, you know, uh, something that actually happened. And we closed the Dome by beating the hell out of the Green Bay Packers. And again, I go back to saying this, that, that team, that, that Falcons team just had a swagger to it. They I mean, they just knew they were good. Like, I mean, you felt every time we got the ball, we were gonna score. And it didn't happen 
from the jump. I mean, we lost a game, a heartbreaker to Kansas City, uh, where we took a, a lead uh, by one. And instead of kicking the, the extra point to make it a two-point lead, we're going to go for two. And Eric Berry intercepts the two-point conversion and runs all the way down 100 yards, and we lost by one. That was a turning point for the Falcons, though. Um, and they kind of just they shook it off. And it was just, again, the, the perfect combination of teammates, you know, like the unsung heroes like Muhammad Sanu, who just, you know, just kind of balanced out Julio Jones because he was, you know, he was just uh, a, a reception guy. You know, you always make the reception when you need it. And, you know, kids like uh, Austin Hooper, I mean, we, we had a good team. And uh, but the Packers were good, too. And uh, when we went into that game and this goes back to what I said earlier, I truly believe that energy it translates to the field and uh, that dome was as loud as I ever heard it uh, in my two years in there. And it was crazy. And we dominated the Packers because it was so loud and the energy was so real and, and you could touch it that we won going away. We, we beat the hell out of green, man. I, I tell people to this day, cause that super bowl is a heartbreaker, right? We lost that one to the Patriots after winning up being up by 28 to three and everyone wants to say we choke and all this. And I get it. I get it. You know, but I could tell you as from the inside, I watched that game a few times again, just to see, and the amount of stuff that had to go right for the Patriots and, and simultaneously wrong for us is astronomical. I mean, from the holding penalty to Robert Alford making the game-winning interception and dropping it in, into uh, into what's his name's hands, uh, the catch, little dude on the Patriots. How can I not remember his name? Edelman. Yes, I'm trying to erase it from my memory, but Edelman. I mean, Robert Alford had it in his hands, and he dropped it into his hands. Or the very fact that uh, Tevin uh, Coleman got injured, so Devontae Freeman came in for his play and missed his assignment and let the guy come in to sack Matt Ryan and put us at a field goal that ends the game. So again, all that had to, to wind up, but I always say that had that game and this is the Super Bowl, right? It was in Houston. I said, if that game was in Georgia in Atlanta, we would have beat the hell out of the Patriots because there's no way that energy would have let anyone down. But that's 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 football. You know, yeah, as I say, on that fan base note, how was the fan base different different in Atlanta than maybe where you'd worked previously? I think that you know it's interesting because this is Atlanta was one of those towns that uh, very prideful town, very wonderful town, really the model of of what America should be, right? I mean, racial harmony within the city uh, is is second to none. I mean, every everyone is from the ATL, the A, you know, and. And again, this is where I listen to my fans. I listen to what their pride is, what they hang their hats on. And, you know, the Atlanta was one of the few towns where the baseball team is a little bit, was a little bit higher than the football team, I, you know, or very close to the football team. And, uh, you know, I remember bringing out some of my hockey sensibilities. So my first game in Atlanta was the 50th anniversary for the Falcons on Monday night football versus the Eagles. So I was like, boy, pressure, pressure, pressure. And I was by myself. I had inherited um, two people on my staff at the time, uh, Tron Stamper and, and Brandon Roof, wonderful human beings, know nothing about video production. So I was literally editing 
myself because I wanted something different every game to 2 a.m. every night just because I had no staff that had that uh, that skill set. Um, but I remember I brought uh, ATL to um, the We Will Rock You chant because I had asked everybody and everybody who's from Atlanta, who's from that area, I go, well, you know, well, tell me about Atlanta. And they said, this is the ATL. And I said, do you everyone ever do a chant to the ATL? And they were like, mm, I don't think so. So I, I put a, a three-part chant, you know, boom, boom, shh, boom, boom, ATL. And it, it awakened something in our fans. And, you know, that to me is like, you know, when you, you, you go, why, why haven't we done this before? You know, I don't get it. Um, and so I connected to them pretty, pretty quickly because, again, the pride was there. It just needed to, you know, fan the flames of it. They were wonderful fans and, um, you know, fantastic. And I can't say enough about how that that same fandom translated to Atlanta United. Uh, it's funny, I think, when I, yeah, I was going to say, when I came to see you in Atlanta, you really enjoyed the game, great game. I feel like I remember that ATL kind of into either the beginning of the game, piling that or, you know, some part of the game where that ATL was incorporated into soccer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of people assume that soccer fans aren't the football fans, but I'm like, are you crazy? They're the same fans. It's the same argument I always make wherever I am, that if the Dodgers do well, we should congratulate the Dodgers. They're, they're our team. We're not in competition with the Dodgers. You know, we should wish them well. We should wish the Rams well. If they, I mean, it's about LA, right? So um, I, I was the same way in Atlanta. You know, I remember when um, the Braves won the division my last year we played the the chop and the whole stadium 70,000 fans are doing the chop um and you know that's what people sometimes forget you know because sports fans are sports fans and if you're a Falcons fan you're a Braves fan and if you're a Braves fan you're a United fan if you're a United fan you're a Hawks fan right. um and I think you know uh they just were hungry for that same kind of it's it's a big city that feels small Atlanta and um and feels country it feels southern and you know uh, we used to call it southern hostility uh but they just they just want that kind of hey recognition and sometimes it's you know they wanted to win one they hadn't won one forever and you know it was the it was the Braves so they were just they're just great fans they really are and I think the difference though is you know football fan uh is a higher dollar fan. Uh, so sometimes, uh, you know, you don't get the, the energy you need from say the 400 level or the 300 level where soccer fans are, are wild. And I love developing what we did with the Atlanta United. Yeah. I mean, I remember that year when you opened up, uh, I remember the first or second year, it might've been the second year, but you, uh, second home game, oh, you know, against the Atlanta United was playing whoever they were playing against 72,000 people for a soccer you know, regular home game the first month of the season when sometimes it even takes into the season to get the fan base to come out, right? And, um, you know, I remember what an impressive building it was opening up Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And, you know, you know, what was it like opening up that building with all that state-of-the-art technology and, you know, transitioning from the Georgia Dome even? Well, hey, listen, I mean, it, it was a perfect storm of a lot of things, right? I mean, to, when I first took the job, there was no medium in which we were going to be able to populate this, right? Um, it was, it was, there was nothing. And so we were going in blind. There was no one I could call and go, hey, how'd you do this to your board? I mean, the closest thing was 
Jacksonville who had that big board, but it wasn't circular. And I was like, geez, I mean, we're going to figure this out. So we spent countless, countless hours developing it and workshopping it and trying to, trying to figure out how to make it unique. And, you know, at one point, one of the, the designers were like, well, we'll make it a moving thing. And I'm like, you can't make it a moving thing. I said, you got to think of being a fan first, right? If you and I are sitting at a game and I look up and I, I see it's second and eight, and that's where I see second and eight. And then something happens and I look back up and I can't find second and eight or third and three or whatever. I can't, I got to like find it and look around. the. It's going to drive people crazy. They're going to hate that experience. So we had to develop it the right way. And that was our, our quadrants. And at that, as we were doing that, we were closing the dome, right? And we were launching a soccer team. And oh yeah, we're going to the Super Bowl. So I had to go to that Super Bowl. We we're organizing the the uh, the the victory parade, and uh, our governor, uh, or our mayor rather, wanted it to be the largest parade ever. He wanted it to be like an eight mile run. I'm like, we can't do that. <laughs> we had Clydesdales, and I'm like, they can't go eight miles. So we're dealing with all that stuff. And then of course we lose that game that way. And so going home, it was, it was depressing. It was sad. Like I wanted to cry. And, uh, but the Atlanta United was starting up a couple of weeks later. So I had to quickly pivot because they were, it's a different organization, even though it's run by uh, or owned by Arthur Blank, it's run differently from a different organization. And I was part of the shared services. So I had to take my Falcons hat off quickly, put my United hat on and, and get to work and do it in a way where I was happy because this was their inaugural year. You know, I can't come in like, damn these Falcons, you know, <laughs> I can't do it. So it was, it was tough for all of us. Um, and of course we didn't have a home because we had a, 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 a soccer facility that was being built. We had a football facility out way out in, uh, in Gwinnett County, which was um, small and our stadium wasn't built yet. So we had no offices, we were gypsies. We had uh, a set of offices in the Georgia, World, uh, Georgia Congress Center that uh, was an open floor plan, but we outgrew it fast. So they put us in like a, a satellite office so we had all these machines and we had all these monitors to simulate the board. So it was truly a challenge for us to, to figure out how we were going to make this work. And we had, we needed wonderful partners like we had in, in um, digital kitchen. And of course, Ross video who, who we created the test for essentially for the Falcons, but we were doing this without a net. Um, and then of course we go over the, to Georgia tech because our stadium had to be delayed a few times because of rain and whatnot. So we had to start our soccer season, our inaugural year at Georgia Tech. And they opened the gates for 55,000 fans. And of course, it was the inaugural game. So we, didn't, we weren't too surprised that 55,000 showed. I think we were surprised when 55 showed the next game. And we were like, wow, they really like this. And then it got to the point where we were said, boy, can we create, recreate this atmosphere in Mercedes-Benz Stadium? Because Mercedes-Benz was so bigger, so much bigger than Georgia Tech, you know, Bobby Dodd Stadium. Um, and, and it was so intimate. You were right on top of the field. There was another 20,000, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, we didn't know if we could do it. And then, you know, we had wonderful people uh, at Atlanta United. Had great vision, starting with uh, with Darren, the president, who was just a, a phenomenal soccer mind. And then uh, Ann, uh, who, Ann Rodriguez, who was the, the vice president of business operations, who had 
who was a pit bull in her in her vision. And then they brought in uh, a wonderful marketing director in uh, Skate Nofsinger, who stayed true to their vision. And I mean, we went toe to toe a lot, Skate and I. But it was always, you know, I, I always used to tell her that you know, iron sharpens iron because we went at each other to make the best product. And and she was she was also a pit bull, and I, I love her to death because of it because we had the best product and everything that like the golden spike that's become you know kind of synonymous with Atlanta United happened from you know the original concept she wanted to do a video of the golden spike the spike that binds Atlanta because Atlanta is the transportation that she really put a lot of effort into into the, the story of Atlanta United and that's why we're called Atlanta United because all the rails bring you together. Um, and so the, we did this video that had a, a golden spike in it. And then I said in a meeting, what if we made this golden spike larger than life? Because the, the whole thing at Unite and Conquer was, her, was her, her vision. So Unite was the fans and Conquer was the team. And I said, well, why don't we blow this spike up and make it part of the, the ambiance? You carry it in, the fans carry it in. I remember that. They put it in and they drive it home. And that's how we unite the team and the fans. And it was such a great symphony of, of, of vision and ideas. And I am, you know, it sounds crazy, but I, I think that I am so proud, more, more proud of that than a lot of the other things I've done in my career. And, and to see those fans, and like I said, you know, we hosted the Super Bowl my last year in Atlanta and we had more fans at the MLS Cup. Now, of course, that's because of press and all that, but it's still a, something you hang your hat on. We set every single attendance record that MLS had. We set so many wonderful records and we did it with our fans. We did it lock, stock and barrel with our fans. And I, I love that. And of course, I never would have thought you know, when I first got there, I knew I was going to be doing soccer. I never would have thought how much of a fan I would have become of the soccer uh, ambiance, the soccer traditions and I, I love it. I miss that game more than anything. I've gone to a few Galaxy games out here and, and a couple LFC, LAFC games because I, I love it so much. And uh, I'm super proud of that moment. So uh, last thing with Atlanta, if I remember correctly, I remember coming out there in March 19 to see you. Amazing control room. Just everything about Atlanta was amazing, especially the stadium. But in 2018, I believe you had a chance to win the MLS Cup and, and put another ring on the hand? Yes, and we did. Uh, and I, that was a phenomenal run. That was a phenomenal run. We were, we were, there was no doubt in my mind we were the best team in, in MLS. And uh, it was, it was, uh, again, I, I, like I said, it was just as sweet as the Stanley cup and the Falcon, not better, but, but I think, you know, the penultimate moment for me is my daughter who was in my wife's belly for the 97 championship was at my shoulder when we won the, the MLS cup and I was the horn guy as well. Right. So I hit the goal horn and I remember looking at her and going, hit the horn. And she got to be part of that. And experiencing that with my daughter was by far the penultimate moment in my career to, to see the, the torch uh, being shared with her and passed to her. Uh, it was nothing in the world like it. And uh, it was probably my favorite memory. And working together, right? To mention she was working for the team in the building at the time, even more special. Yeah, she she became uh, she did a replay and and uh, 
uh, color, which is you know, uh, you know, writing on the video and making all the the, the graphics come together, and um, she's phenomenal at it. And she and you know, she's she's called games for the Stripers and he worked with the Hawks, and she's she's gonna she's gonna be uh, she's gonna be better than me. That's for certain. Yeah, how does it feel to have your children, your niece, you know, people in your family being, you know, replacing yourself now for the long term? Uh, you know, for me, it's uh, uh, it's rewarding because, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't take the traditional road to success. Um, I, I was kicked out of school uh, in tenth grade, um, and to 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 inspire, you know, people and to open opportunities for people. Uh, and I always say that uh, that's probably the most rewarding part of, of being a seasoned guy in, in the business is I, I don't, I'll never take credit for anyone's success. Um, I open doors and it's up to you to walk through. So, you know, and, you know, I look around the league and I see guys like Johnny Greco who created a, a, an amazing uh, atmosphere in Vegas. And now he's with Seattle, the Kraken. And I, and I see guys like, you know, Brian Scott with Van Wagner and, all these people that Matt Monmayer with, with uh, the Braves and all these people that I've opened doors for, that's so rewarding. Um, and uh, it's humbling, you know, to, to be able to inspire, you know, your, your own family into, into choosing this path because uh, they see the passion that you have for it. So it's the most rewarding thing about my career. And similar how uh, Jason Cothern came with you to Atlanta, right? You know, help grow each other there, working together. Uh, more recently, you know, summer 2019, Mr. Steven Ziff, after months of, of working on it, got you to move out to Southern California, uh, working with the Los Angeles Chargers, but also helping open up SoFi Stadium. You know, what's been your favorite part of that opportunity so far? Well, you know, uh, I came out to LA um, as a consultant. Um, they, you know, I knew Steve and Steve wanted to kind of glean my, my experience and, you know, best practices with, with the guys he had currently. And uh, so I came out and uh, they used the opportunity. I met with uh, the Chargers and then I met with the, the stadium, the Rams uh, at the same time. And, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't expect anything from it. I remember going, wow, you know, I remember walking into SoFi Stadium and thinking, there's no way this is going to be able to rival Atlanta. There's no way. And then I walked in, I was like, Oh my God. You know, I always call Atlanta the Taj Mahal of stadiums. Well, I'm going to call SoFi Stadium the Pantheon of stadiums because it truly is a, a amazing building. And then seeing that video board, which is basically the same thing as Atlanta, but now two sides and the unique challenge it, 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 it presented. I was like, damn, I kind of wish I was doing this board just like I did in Atlanta. And, you know, I talked to Steve and then, you know, uh, I met with the chargers and, you know, we, we had a great conversation. I went to the airport here in uh, Santa Ana. I went to uh, John Wayne airport. I was sitting at the airport and I got a, uh, a call from Fred uh, Mass, who's uh, our, uh, our uh, chief of staff. Yep, Fred. Hey, would you, are you interested in maybe, you know, um, coming out here? Uh, I said, well, I go, I gotta, I gotta think about that. You know, I, I gotta, I gotta talk to the wife and all that. Um, because again, I, I came out as a, as a favor. Um, and then I went, uh, but you know, I was intrigued by it. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, I kind of wanted it. Right. But, 
I, I, you know, just to have that opportunity open, I was like, well, I got to think about it. Um, and then I went back to Atlanta and, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't getting the, the advancement that I wanted there. Um, uh, so I, that was the week of uh, the NFL meetings in New York and I flew to New York on a Wednesday. On Thursday, I got contacted by SoFi Stadium, the Rams side, seeing if they would be interested uh, in me coming out there full time. And I was like, whoa, now I feel like the pretty girl at the prom. And uh, so I was like, I started thinking about it. And really, you know, the, the Chargers had the bigger challenge. They were, you know, the, you know, it's the Rams building essentially, right? Uh, you know, even though we paid our, our, our dues and whatnot, but I, uh, they, they had a, a, a tougher fan base to, to, to kind of build, you know, cause we're not that far off of San Diego and, and, you know, there's some heart feelings there and, you know, some obstacles to overcome. They were playing in dignity field, um, which is the, the soccer stadium for the galaxy. Um, and they just, it just had a, a, a different challenge, but I liked it because it reminded me in a lot of ways of Atlanta in that the Chargers felt like the United and the Rams felt like the Falcons, right? More steeped in um, traditions and, and uh, traditional ways of going out where the, the, the Chargers were bold and LA cool and, and, and wanting to kind of reinvent the Chargers and, and you know, kind of, you know, really dig our heels in in LA. And I started to, you know, started to think about it. And I, I remember saying to uh, Scarpy, who uh, Scarpy Henderson is uh, uh, the chief technology officer for the stadium. I said, you know what? The, the, the home run, in my opinion, for you would be is if you hired Jason Cothern for the stadium and he brought me on for the Rams. Um, and that's how we started talking like that. And then I kind of, I knew that I liked the Chargers more. So I kind of withdrew from following up on the Rams and I really pushed Jason on the stadium and uh, Jason, Jason's perfect for the stadium. I didn't want to do the stadium. I didn't want to be in that role. I, I like being part of a, a team. Um, There's a lot more community, right? I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a totally different feel on the team yeah, side. It's, it's more, you know, it's more passion to it, right? I, you know, not that Jason doesn't have passion, uh, but I have more passion within the the organization and within the brand that I'm working, which is the Chargers. And, uh, I, you know, and it sounds silly, but I, I like the Chargers as a kid. I always liked the bolt, you know, and it just, it just seemed right. Not that I had anything against the Rams in any way. Plus the Rams were kind of, you know, uh, trying to figure out how they wanted to do it. They had just lost their game presentation director. So they were trying to reorganize and all that. Um, so I didn't really follow that road. Did Philip Rivers have anything to do with it from your days in Raleigh? Well, you know, it, it was cool to see Philip. I, I wish I wish he would have retired uh, in Los Angeles rather than uh, Indianapolis. But yeah, it was great to see Phil. I mean, I did all, all four of his years in NC State. So it was cool to see him out there and, and you know, what a legend he's become, you know? But well, with Jason, like I said, I don't take credit for anyone's success. Jason Jason's a hard, hard worker and Jason is cut from the same cloth that I am. And Jason and I, I, I love Jason. I think he's, he's uh, 
a phenomenal talent and he was ready to to step out of my shadow and I, I don't mean to sound like uh, an arrogant anyway but you know it's tough when you're the two in every step of the way because I've been the two I was a two to Bob Becker um, and now he was there and I and he just needed to, to step out of the shadow and into the light and his own and I opened the opportunity but Jason kicked the door open you know and Jason's done a phenomenal job in SoFi Stadium. And what was great about it for me is, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a happy guy. I love I love working with people, and and you know, seeing Jason succeed again, it goes back to that's one of my one of the most rewarding things about uh, my career. And having him out there is a is a comfort for me. You know, I knew that I wasn't gonna have to work with somebody that I didn't know. I, I and he knew what it took from Atlanta. Like if somebody else that we'd hired somebody else who had to learn it. I would have been really in an awkward position trying to help out. And so the Rams and the Chargers were developing their own shows, but we had the Jason to, to, to help us, to guide us because he, what, what we went through in Atlanta. So, uh, you know, I think um, there's a lot of great memories already here. You know, I, I can't tell you how awesome it was to work at Dignity, um, uh, Dignity Healthcare uh, field over there. Uh, Cause it was intimate, you know, it was, it was only 35,000 fans. Um, but my God, what a wonderful place to watch NFL football. I mean, it was just, you're on top of everything, just a beautiful setting. It's a beautiful stadium. Uh, and again, we're meeting wonderful people over there. Like, you know, my new staff, you know, someone like uh, Mark tomorrow, who's been in the business longer than I've been in the business. And he, he you know, who's done so many wonderful things and, and his career almost mirrors mine and to work with him on the event side has been a blessing. And, and uh, you know, and Sean Tabler, who is, uh, who's my game presentation director, you know, and I, and I say this with, with, with all good regards is he is one of the few game callers that I've worked with where I didn't feel like I had to, to hold his hand at all. He gets it. He's really good. I mean, he was with the Seahawks. Uh, and then, of course, the, the 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 video production team led by Jason Levine, just one of the best in the business. Those guys are, uh, you know, their social content and digital social content is, is second to none. And just young, great talent and seeing that young talent. And, uh, of course, uh, the two girls on the event side, uh, uh, Katie Daishala and uh, Allie Berry. I mean, talk about just seeing the that passion and energy and, you know, just it, it reinvigorates who you are. And I always tell people that, you know, as you start to age in this business, there are two things you can be. You can be a dinosaur and the world passes you by and you go extinct, or you can be a primate and you evolve and you, you, you figure out what the hell TikTok is, right? Um, and that's who I am. I'm a primate. I, I listen to, the, to these, these young, talented people uh, and I try to inspire them and try to give them, them wings, you know, by, by saying, do it, you know, don't be afraid of it, do it. Let's give it a shot. And if it fails, it fails. It's not, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not curing cancer. We're, we're entertaining people, but I, I think it's, it, it's been very rewarding, uh, doing this, this last season with SoFi. Uh, and even though we didn't do it in front of a single fan, um, we still put a really good show out there and um, without any hiccups and, and we created a, a, an environment and, you know, again, with the, the help of people like Ross video and 
just, you know, Drew Shealy, who came over from Atlanta, who was a young guy that we hired there, who is phenomenal in the business and all those things. I mean, Jason brought a lot of people from our, our team in Atlanta. And, you know, that's the rewarding thing for me. You know, I'll say this about one of the guys that came over, Brandon Campbell, who I met in Florida, um, who worked uh, for ANC in Florida, and he did kind of our LED boards. Uh, Brandon just had that X factor, you know, he's just quiet guy, but determined. Um, I wouldn't, wouldn't put a, a, a bet against him in any way. Um, but when we went to Atlanta, he was part of our graphics team and we needed somebody to oversee IPTV. And everywhere you talk about IPTV, you talk to anybody and they'll say, IPTV is a, is a nightmare. And we had met with Aaron with the San Francisco 49ers. He's like, that's your biggest nightmare. So we knew we needed to dedicate somebody to them, but we didn't have the, the salary set up for that um, the way we needed it to be to get an IPTV guy. And I shouldn't say the salary, but we didn't have... Uh, IPTV is a unique thing. So you don't have any creativity to it. It's, it's a, kind of a, an egghead position. By asking Brandon to do that, which he was very uncomfortable with at first, having that creativity that he had on the graphics side and learning the operations on the IPTV side, we never had a single complaint about IPTV in Atlanta. And same thing's happening out here in LA. And he's become one of the preeminent IPTV guys in the business. And that's what I, I hang my hat on when I go. That's inspiration that I like to see, right? I opened the door and that guy kicked it open. And now he's out here with us in LA and on top of the world. And partnering with one of the more innovative CMOs in the business and digital media and content department. You know, what are some creative things that you guys have done together as a team this year, you know, highlighting on um, maybe some of the limitations? You know, uh, that you bring up a great point. Not only did... You know, Steve is Steve Ziff is, is is a phenomenal visionary. So sometimes that doesn't work out well because you, you have a lot of visionaries, and when visionaries, you know, kind of sometimes go like this. Um, Steve is not that type of visionary, and and then Fred too. I mean, Fred is you know, Fred comes from a, a political background and where he, he did a lot of campaigns, so he knows he knows how to to talk to people. He knows how he knows what it takes, um, and it's kind of a unique approach to sports. And so we, we want to be bold. We want to try things out. And I think, you know, the way we rebranded our logo and our uniforms was a phenomenal thing, considering we were on the, the cusp of COVID. COVID was right there and we were adjusting to this, this world that we're, we're sitting in now. And I think those moments paired with the fact that we did, um, you know, our, our, our first draft and drafting Justin Herbert uh, all digitally was no easy task. Um, but I'm super proud of that. I'm super proud of uh, the way we, you know, that way Jason's team adjusted to a video board that they had no concept of, you know, this, I didn't take anyone from Atlanta out here. These are guys learning it on the fly and guys like David Bredo on this team is, you know, a phenomenal team. I mean, you know, uh, Tyler Pino and all these guys just really did a wonderful job with that halo and it's not an easy task it, it, these files are large and not only that it's just hard to think that way it's hard to think when you're used to creating in a box and now you got to create in a circle uh it's not easy um and i think you know how we keep pushing the industry industry standards and how we want to still lead the way you know the idea that we have for our draft this year because we will still be in covid it, to me is 
is unique and, and fresh. And, you know, the way we handled the uh, hard knocks, you know, it wasn't the most intriguing season because they couldn't cover it the way they normally cover it, but we still made it work. And, you know, we had a good run on the show and uh, yeah, I, it's hard to, to pinpoint one thing, but it's everything. It's, 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 it's seeing uh, the reinvention of the chargers and, and I'm proud to be part of that. Yeah, the great thing about Hard Knocks, though, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, not every city's uniform around being sports fans run all the teams. And Hard Knock for the first time this year got to focus on football in L.A. and not one of the two teams. Right, right. And that, that was the unique approach, right? I mean, because it was it was Hard Knocks L.A. Because, you know, we're, we're you know, us and the Rams are on similar paths in a lot of ways, right? You know, they're coming back from St. Louis and we're coming back from San Diego. And, you know, there are some fans that are, are you know are hard to to grab back and you know the raiders were here for a while so they left their mark here and they're not far away in vegas so it's it's a tough town to to compete in uh with two football teams uh and and of course you know this is one of the towns where football isn't king um where the lakers are king uh, and King LeBron, you know, uh, holds uh, the court. And then the Dodgers win the World Series. And the Dodgers are right there with the Lakers in that same breath. So we're all competing for the sports fan. But I think there's plenty of that to go around. We are L.A. And just like I grew up in New York, if you grew up in New York, you were a Rangers fan. Uh, and then you were the Giants. And then you were the Yankees. You know, and then everyone rooted for the Knicks. And if you were a Mets fan, you rooted for the Jets. And you rooted for uh, what, what team am I missing? Uh, the Islanders, right? That was the breakup. There's no reason why that can't be here. And I think you see that a lot. Uh, you know, since we're, our, our office is based out in Orange, I think Ducks fans, uh, you know, are, are, are Chargers fans as, as well as Kings fans. But, you know, they're, you know, and the Angels are out here. So we're split. The Galaxy's out here. So we've got 12 teams in LA. And, you know, and, and it's La La Land. It's a lot of entertainment in LA. Not to mention women's soccer on the rise. That's correct. That's correct. I enjoy women's soccer. Yeah, it's going to be exciting, Angel City. So my last question for you before I lose you here, you know, how has been, you know, you mentioned the Herbert draft and the creativity around that draft. How has it been working with generational talent like Justin Herbert? And how has that helped with fan engagement this year? You know, uh, uh, Justin Herbert is a blessing. And I could tell you that, um, first of all, he's a wonderful human being. He's, you know, that's where it all starts. Um, he's just well-mannered, just, um, he gets it right off the hop, just a really good kid. Like, and it, it's almost like the, you know, the Cosmos wrote it for us. I mean, he was a Chargers fan growing up. Um, and he, he, he actually wrote an essay where he said, when I grow up, I'm going to be the Chargers quarterback. And it, it happened. So, um, you know, it's interesting when I look back at that draft, I think we had, the big name coming out of that for in our slot was Tua Tungvaloa. And we had started to think that's going to be our guy, you know, that's going to be our guy. And when he went right before us, we hadn't heard a lot about Justin Herbert, right? I mean, even though he's right here from Oregon, uh, we knew he was a good quarterback and, and in the combine, he was throwing dimes out there. I mean, so we knew he was good. Uh, but I think we had bought the hype of Tua and so when we got it, there were there were people that were like, all right, well, we'll see how it goes. And I remember turning uh, to to uh, Sean and saying, you know, this will be the this could be the day where we go. Do you remember when we almost got Tua, but we got 
this guy instead. And I said it kind of in jest. And second game of the year, he comes out. I go, right, let's see what this kid's got. And he just never took his foot off the pedal. And he just a pleasure to watch, pleasure to work with. Um, and I hope he stays that way. Um, and I think he will because he's a humble guy. But he just gets it. I mean, he's fun to watch. The way he thinks football is fun to watch. And, you know, a lot of the knocks on this guy was that he was um, – uh, um, that he was quiet and all that. That, that. that guy is a leader on and off the field. And I am tickled pink that we've got Justin Herbert uh, behind center. And I think you know, this team is, is not only that, I mean, we, we just got a great collection of guys. I mean, you know, if Derwin James can stay healthy, he's a game changer, right? And he's a good human being, another good human being. Joey Bosa, uh, one of the funniest guys with the dry wit, you know, um, Keenan Allen, I mean, this team is poised uh, to, to be the next echelon of great teams. Um, and now with our coach, we're super excited. I mean, you know, no knock on Anthony. Anthony's a, a wonderful, wonderful man. And I, I truly like working with him. And uh, just, God, can't say anything uh, negative about that guy in any way. Uh, but, you know, you know, Brandon comes in, Brandon Staley comes in here, you know, with this, renewed kind of energy and you know he, he was able to create the number one defense in football on a zoom right so uh we're excited for him we're excited for him and i, I think you know we are what we want to be right now we are the, the perfect mixture of young talent and veterans and uh young coach uh who's ready to take on the world and you know that passion is visceral. I mean, you know, passion doesn't die as you get older, but there's something uh, energetic about it when you're younger and, and coming up as a head coach or a player. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing all this today. It was great kind of going through uh, the path and the history and appreciate you contributing. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm sorry I, I go long-winded, but I, I get stories for days. <laughs> it's all quality. Good stuff. Thank you, Pete. Awesome. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening to the Sports Equity Podcast, where we discuss the value that sports brings to business. Follow us for new episodes on a weekly basis. See you next time.